immense. I mean, all scripture is truly immense, but there are mountain peaks uh, along the way. And this morning's passage is one of those mountain peaks indeed. In fact, the first few words of the opening verse in our passage are etched, no doubt, into your minds as one of those mountaintop verses. And so let's read a portion of John chapter 1 uh, together now to set it before our hearts and minds. And then let's drill down into our particular passage of consideration this morning. So if you haven't already, I want to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John. And follow along with me as I read. We'll begin in verse 9. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to be adopted. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him. That's John the Baptist testified about him and cried out saying, this one, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Verse 16, for of his fullness, we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the father He has explained him. This morning, I want us to focus on verses 14 through 18 as we progress through this most remarkable gospel. I always seek to outline any given passage on any given Sunday in a way for you to hang your thoughts upon and and your notes upon. And so I've done so again this morning, but I want to let you know for this morning at least I could not go past at all drawing from and adapting Dr. MacArthur's outline stemming from a remark he made back in 2012. It's just too good uh, to let my ego get in the way of trying to conjure up something my own today. So in verses 14 through 18, we'll see number one, Jesus displays glory. We'll see number two, Jesus dispenses grace in verses 16 through 17. And then third and final, we'll see that Jesus defines God in verse 18. Jesus displays glory, he dispenses grace, and he defines God. That's the skeleton. And so let's allow the passage itself, the text of Scripture itself, to act as meat on the bones, if you will. But before we get underway, we really should pray. Father, we come uh, before you joyful. Uh, with hearts full of what we've sung, the truths we've sung, privileged to participate in the Lord's table, overwhelmed at the reality of the new covenant, praising you for adoption as children, and asking that you might bless this time in a way far abundantly beyond anything we could ever ask or think. Through the power of your Spirit, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. James Montgomery Boyce, who I'm sure is familiar to you, he was the pastor of the very historic 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He was a truly exceptional mind. And in his expositional work on John's Gospel, he writes of another exceptional mind, Dr. Francis Schaeffer, who I know that David and Wendy Johnson are very familiar with, having studied at uh, one of his Labrie campuses there in London. And the account goes that Francis Schaeffer would tell of a story of an American government leader, a very prominent government leader, who'd been invited along to give a lecture. The lecture was on restoring moral values in society. Now, you can imagine in doing so, the lecture would be full of language about returning to and maintaining the moral fabric and structure of uh, society, which by logical conclusion, we would say as believers must be built upon truth. 
And so after this well-known US government leader finished his lecture, there was a brief moment of silence, which was then broken by one of the students in attendance who stood up and asked this question, Sir, upon what base do you build your values? It's a good question. To which the speaker sheepishly replied, well, I, now that you ask, I, I really do not know, I guess. And you can imagine the immediate thought in the room, can't you? Here's a man lecturing university-age students on restoring moral values in society who is asking them to do something but not providing them anything from which to build from. Schaefer recounts this, he remarks, this man was like someone who was trying to tell people not to steal money from their employees, yet giving them no reason at all why they should not. And if you think about it, and Boyce brings it out in his remarks, if you think about it, the experience of this speaker is in no way unique at all. In fact, it is the experience of nearly everyone outside of the Lord Jesus Christ the world over. People who reject the truth of God as revealed in the person of Christ in the pages of Scripture, they may be able to wax eloquently, and know how they do wax eloquently about life and about its purpose and bettering the world, but they have no true basis from which to build from. In this vein, one commentator remarked, quote, people want to believe in a system of values and yet they have no real basis for their belief. They are confused about life. They do not know what is right or wrong or true or false. They want to believe that life has meaning, but they have no valid basis, end quote. Well, from verse 14 alone, we can know for certain The very basis for all of life, all of moral life, all meaning, all purpose. For in it, verse 14 alone, we see that God is true. And that creation and that all it contains, including you and I, has meaning. And that because God has entered our world, there is significance for the present, for the past, And most certainly for the future. The very entry by God into his creation to dwell among those whom he created is a significant base from which to build reality from. It may sound out of this world to the unbelieving. But here, as we think upon the Word, the Lord Jesus, the Eternal Son, becoming flesh and dwelling among us and revealing God to us, we find the riches of life, the purpose for our life, the very reason you and I were created, the true basis from which all of existence flows out from. To become flesh is just another way of saying human nature. The eternal son, the Logos, he took on a human nature and dwelt among us. We're still in the prologue portion of the gospel, the first 18 verses. We'll complete that today. And they serve as a table of contents, as you know, to the remainder of the gospel. Once we hit verse 19, we're then into the gospel narrative proper. And so this morning, there is one more lesson from this opening prologue, this table of content, that God, through the pen of the Apostle John, wants us to learn. And it's all predicated, which means established, upon those first four words in verse 14. The Word became flesh. And so before we get into the glory that Jesus displays, the grace that Jesus dispenses and the God that Jesus defines, we need to talk a little bit about the miracle of all miracles. The Son, as the eternal one, taking on a human nature. 
Looking briefly at what this does not mean will aid us in understanding, I believe, what it does mean for the Word to become flesh. What is not meant is that the Word, who we read about in verse 1, who is God, what is not meant is God becoming flesh, becoming human in nature. It does not mean that He is no longer God and now man. I think for the most part we understand that and we believe that. The Word, the eternal Son, did not cease to be God when He took on human nature. So, when we think of the Son, who would go on to be given the name Jesus at His birth, in eternity He's the Son. He would go on to be given the name Jesus at His birth. When we think of the Son, we must not think that there was any of His divine nature laid aside as He came to dwell among us. Another thing that we must not take this to mean is that the triune Godhead in the arrival of the Son here on earth, we must not take that to mean that the triune Godhead is then broken into two, where the Father and the Spirit remain, but the Son, as He took on human nature, He's then removed from the Trinity. I think we understand all this. What happens at the Incarnation is that the second member of the Trinity, the Son, moves from being God to being the God-man. The God-man. Meaning, there is no change whatsoever at all in His divine nature in coming into the world. He takes on a human nature, which is His for all eternity. Jesus entered into the world entered into the world as the God-man, and He lives on forever as the God-man. When we go to be with Him in glory, Jesus will not be a hovering spirit or a giant shining icon. He will be the same God-man He was after His resurrection in possession of His glorified body with which He appeared to the disciples here on earth with. Visible, recognizable, God-man. He will also be just like that when He returns also. Where He will once again stand literally, physically upon the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus in His arrival and for all eternity to come is a mysterious hypostatic union of not part God and part man, but truly and fully God and truly and fully man. To think of this, that eternal God took on a human nature, is beyond comprehension, really. It goes beyond what our finite mind can truly grasp. There was a change that occurred at the incarnation, but it was not a change in the divine nature. It was a change, get this, it was a change in the form of existence for the second member of the Trinity. And so think of Jesus Christ, the God-man, as one person with two natures. He's not two persons, he's one person with two natures. What are those natures? A divine nature and a human nature, without sin, of course. And it is in that divine and human nature union that one person, undivided, exists. And it's from that basis, <laughs> of that very existence, as the God-man, flow three immense activities by Jesus that we'll look at this morning. In verses 14 to 15, we see first, as I said, number one, Jesus displays glory. Look at verse 15. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The divine Son, as I said, took on a human nature. Born of a virgin. Born of a virgin and thus receiving a human body of flesh, just like ours. But conceived of the Spirit, thus immune from the sin of Adam. 
He came and dwelt among us, is what John writes. The Greek literally there means, and he pitched a tent among us. That's remarkable, really. It immediately draws us into the Old Testament setting, the pitched tent, the tabernacle, where God would come and meet with his chosen people. Exodus 25 verse 8 says, Have Israel construct a sanctuary for me, construct a tent for me, that I may dwell among them. God would dwell with Israel in the form of a Shekinah glory cloud that would come and fill the tent, the tabernacle, the sanctuary. You know, Moses was unable to enter at times because of the Shekinah glory cloud, the filling of the sanctuary. According to Exodus 40, verse 34 and 35, the glory of Yahweh in the form of a cloud so filled the tabernacle that Moses was unable to enter. The same was said of the priests too, inside the temple. So not only in the tent and the tabernacle, but also the temple, according to 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10 and 11, which says this, when the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of Yahweh so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of Yahweh had filled the house of Yahweh. And so in those days, God made himself evident by appearing in a cloud of glory. And so what John is saying there in verse 14 is that God now dwells among us, not in the form of a cloud, but in the form of a person. And you know what? There is greater clarity, greater fullness in a divine person than a cloud. And so we must understand Jesus as being the most visible, clearest, fullest manifestation of God. This is exactly what the author of Hebrews was driving at, right? In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, through whom he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of, of his nature. And so Jesus, the word who took on a human nature is the fullest expression of God to us. And when you think about it further, it was only in the pitch tent or the tabernacle or the temple that Israel could come and worship God. It was only there. As Yahweh made himself manifest through the Shekinah glory cloud. It was only there that Israel could come and worship God as God came and dwelt among them. But in these days, it's only through Jesus that we can offer true worship that is acceptable and pleasing to God. All other alleged means of access are denied whether by human effort or by each of the false man-made religions in the world who reject the true Jesus by commandeering a quasi-Jesus who is not truly God. John then attests to all this by saying, and we saw his glory. And we, he said, we saw his glory. The scope of that phrase is debated. Some want to simply and very strictly narrow it down solely to the transfiguration. You remember where John himself, along with Peter and John, they were up on the mountain where they saw the physical manifestation of the glory. When according to Matthew chapter 17 verse 2, Jesus' face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. Some want to say that's what John is referring to strictly and solely, but I don't believe it's as narrow as that. 
I believe it includes that, but it also includes glory displayed through him in other ways. I want you to flick ahead to John chapter 2 for a moment. John chapter 2 and look at verse 11. This is speaking about the miracle that Jesus performed at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. First miracle Jesus ever performed. Look at verse 11 of John chapter 2. This beginning of his signs, the miracle there that he performed, turning water into wine. Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Look ahead to chapter 11 for a moment. Verse 1, there was a certain man that was sick, Lazarus, Jesus' friend. Verse 4, when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death but for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Look at verse 40 of John 11. Jesus said to her, that's Martha, the sister of the deceased, Jesus said to her, did I, not, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? We, we saw his glory. The moment John himself and the moment all else are born of God, the moment they believe, they then see the glory of God. They don't have to die to see the glory of God. They believe and then they see the glory of God. Where? In the person of Jesus. Sure, for John and the disciples, they personally saw Jesus, right? You haven't personally seen Jesus. I haven't personally seen Jesus. Anyone who tells you they've personally seen Jesus is not telling the truth. John and the disciples, they saw Jesus. And they saw his glory manifested not only in miracles. They saw his glory not only manifested up on the mountain. But they saw his glory in the ways he manifested the attributes of God. They saw his glory in the way that Jesus manifested the perfections of God. Such as when he preached and spoke the truth of God. When he displayed the love of God. When he showed compassion. When he overflowed with mercy, they saw the glory of God. The glory of God are the perfections and the attributes and the beauty of God. We must never think that because we do not physically see Jesus like John the Apostle did and the others did, we must never think that because we don't see Jesus physically with our eyes, that we are somehow shortchanged. Or that this is not applicable to us in some way. In that the glory of Christ is not available to us because we didn't see him and behold him with our physical eyes. We must never think that way. Because we should not think of the glory of Jesus as a bright shining light. Or as a radiating beauty that we stare at and are blinded by. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm certainly indebted to John Piper like many of you. Who's written more on the glory of God than just about anyone in our lifetime. He's helped me to see this clearer. 
Look at verse 4 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians 4 verse 4, in whose case the God of this world, that's talking about Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Who is the image of God? For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Verse 6. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shone or shone, depending on where you live in this world. And Sometimes I get confused where I live in this world. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The glory that Jesus displays in his incarnation is a spiritual light rather than a physical light. It's not a glory that you and I see with our physical eyes. But a glory we see with the eyes of our heart. Because God has taken the reality of the incarnate Christ as the basis for which he shines the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ into our hearts with the express purpose of us being able to see not with our physical eyes, but with the spiritual eyes of our heart, the glory of Jesus, who is the full radiance and exact representation of God. Paul prayed, the Apostle Paul, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, he prayed this, that the eyes of our hearts may be opened. And by grace and on the basis of the incarnation, we believe unto salvation and we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus who get this we don't see with our eyes you see for us now in the new covenant we don't see the glory with our eyes we see the glory with our ears we hear we hear from the word of the Lord about the Lord. And in hearing, we see. As we hear the word of God, we see the glory of God. Jesus displays glory. And what did Paul say about this glory of Jesus? Well, look back at verse 18, just up from... Look at verse 18 in chapter 3, just up from where we were. But we all... With unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Paul is saying there that there was a veil. The glory shines so bright, bright upon Moses that he had to wear a veil. Well, well there's no shining light physically. But spiritually, we've had a veil taken away. Because it says there in verse 15, but to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. Verse 16, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Jesus said, did not I say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Paul is saying there that we have had the veil removed and we now behold the glory of Jesus. And as we behold the glory of Jesus, that we don't see with our physical eyes, but we see with the eyes of our heart as we read the word of God, because there is one place in this new covenant age where the glory of God is beheld. And it's in the pages of scripture through the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we behold that glory, what does Paul say? He says, we are transformed into the same image. 
We grow from one level of Christ's likeness to the next as we gaze into the glory of Christ because we have by grace had that glory revealed because the veil has been taken away because by grace we turned to Christ. Paul is saying as you gaze at it, to gaze at it means as you, as you read it, as you read it and as you hear it, as you behold it, meaning as you study it intently with the purpose to know, you will be transformed by it. We get the cart before the horse so often. We want to muster up people and, and motivate people into, into self-discipline, which is a good thing. And to be better husbands and better wives and better parents and better children. And we want to come alongside them and and whack them around the ears with do this and do this. And sometimes we need do this and do this. But if the motivation isn't there, if the, if the foundation is not there, if there is no basis is not there, then it's all just hot air and it runs out of steam very quickly and it becomes dead works. But when the motivation is beholding the glory of Jesus and being so captured by Him and all He's done and all He's done, all His love and His compassion and His mercy... And everything about him, his love for me, that he died on the cross for me. I'm so filled with gratitude when I gaze into the glory of Jesus. And then I want to live for him. And so first Jesus displays glory. Look at verse 15, back to John 1. Jesus displays glory. Verse 15, look there. John testified about him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I mean, we won't really touch on that verse too much, but I do want you to, I don't want you to miss the significance of it. It really is a parenthesis. It's really recapturing what was said prior about John and what will be said in the coming verses about John. It's inserted in there, really, as an afterthought about John the Baptist. And the main idea of verse 15 is really this, that Jesus existed before John, superior to John. Jesus is superior both to the cloud in the desert and the Baptist in the desert. That's what I thought of this, this week. Superior to the cloud in the desert and superior to that Baptist in the desert. That Baptist was a very significant individual. Jesus said no greater person has ever been born of woman than John the Baptist and Jesus is greater than him. John the Baptist reflected and pointed others to the glory. Jesus is the glory. So number one, Jesus displays glory. The second immense activity that flows out from the basis of him being the God-man is second, number two, Jesus dispenses grace. Look at verse 16 and 17. Jesus dispenses grace. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. And to really see the significance of Jesus dispensing grace, we need to pick up that last little phrase there in verse 14, full of grace and truth. And then in verses 16 to 17, we just read verse 16, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. John is saying in verse 16 there, that in Jesus, there is the fullness of deity, the fullness of the Trinity, the fullness of the Godhead, the fullness of God's attributes, the fullness of God's glorious perfections, another way of saying attributes. And it is from that fullness that dwells in Christ, that we receive. We receive not divine attributes, as though we inherit omnipotence or omnipresence, as though cool as that would be. Maybe. <laughs> we don't receive the divine attributes, but what we receive from the fullness that is God, is we receive loving kindness and mercy, and love. That's what we receive. That's all bound up in the Lord Jesus, who is the complete communication of God's grace. He is the full articulation of God's truth. 
It is from out of that storehouse of fullness that we have been showered with loving kindness and mercy and grace and forgiveness and love. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 says, For in Him, Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And we receive from that fullness. And because of that fullness of the divine nature, we who are united to Christ through adoption as sons and daughters, God has supplied us through Christ with all we need. All we need. The victory is already ours in Christ. It's already ours. Eternal life is already ours. All bound up in Christ. But more than that, if that wasn't enough, more than that, look at that little phrase at the end of verse 16. And grace upon grace. So we've received from the fullness of, of, of the deity, not divine attributes, but loving kindness and mercy and compassion and grace and forgiveness and love. And now, grace upon grace. That's a staggering little phrase. Because it serves to highlight that it never runs out. That's what John's saying. It never runs out. It just keeps going. Endless grace. Saving grace. From the fullness of His loving kindness and mercy. And enabling grace. Sanctifying grace is what John's driving at here. Through Christ, God will supply us with all that we need. And there will not be an end to enabling grace. Our Heavenly Father is very kind. Verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. This is not meant to be a backhand to the law. The law is good. It was given by God through Moses. And it's good and it's holy. But it doesn't save you. It doesn't save you. What does the law do? It condemns you. The law was something that was graciously given by God, yes. I think we all agree in that. To show mankind our sinfulness. But the law is not an instrument of saving grace, as has been well said. The law shows sinners their need for salvation. But the law offers no salvation. And so what John is saying in verse 17 is that Jesus who has come, it is He that dispenses grace. The law doesn't. But Jesus, who is the fullness of deity in bodily form, He dispenses and distributes grace. John is not in any way negating the goodness and holiness of the law. The law itself, didn't it? It anticipated the arrival of the Messiah one day. What John is doing is highlighting for us that Jesus is the full realization of the promise to come spoken of in the Old Testament. John is saying salvation and sanctification was not, is not, will never be available by the law. Salvation and sanctification is realized and attained through Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 says, Moses was a faithful servant in God's house, testifying to what would be spoken later 
But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. Moses was the servant over God's house. He spoke about the things that would come later. But Christ is the faithful son over God's house. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the law. Jesus is the fullest expression of the fullness of God. He is full of grace and truth. The third and final immense activity that flows out from Jesus, from the basis of him being the God-man, truly and fully God, while at the exact same time being truly and fully man, truly and fully mind-boggling, but remarkable, is second, well, third rather, Jesus defines God. We've seen that Jesus displays glory. We've seen that Jesus dispenses grace. And now third here in verse 18, Jesus defines God. Look at verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, I mean, that's just mind-bending in and of itself. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, who is God Himself, He has explained Him. This is the final verse in the prologue. The first verse of the prologue, John 1.1, it showed us that the Father and the Son are one. And here in the final verse of the prologue, it also shows us that the Father and the Son are one. Jesus will go on to say in this gospel, won't he? I and the Father are one. He'll go on to say, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. No one has seen God. (laughs) You know, when Moses prayed earnestly, back in Exodus 33, that God might show him his glory. Moses had to hide between two rocks, didn't he? And then God passed by in a cloud. He was not allowed to see God. And I would add just here at this moment, when Moses earnestly prayed, show me your glory, God said yes, and he passed by. And how was the glory revealed? Through words, through scripture. Our glory, the the glory is revealed through words for us. But Moses anyway, he was not allowed to see God. The Old Testament would echo that theme. God cannot be seen. But here's what makes the incarnation and the arrival of the God-man Remarkable. The arrival of the God-man, the incarnation, God doing a work, as we read in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, where God turns the spiritual lights on in our hearts, where we're given eyes to see. Through all of that, through the cross that tore the veil, through the cross that tore down the barrier of the dividing wall between ethnicities, It also tore down the barrier that existed between man being able to see God and God being known. God cannot be known without Christ. God cannot be known apart from Christ. God is seen and known in and through Christ. Why? Because Jesus is the very explanation of God. As Jesus explains God, God can be seen. The cross tore down the barrier. The word explained there is the word exegeomai. You can hear the word exegesis in there. Exegesis is the process of interpreting the Bible, and John is saying that there is only one exegete of God. 
Only one who is able to explain God fully. The eternal Son, who is both one with God and also distinct from the Father. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And, listen to this, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. We have seen His glory. We have had it revealed. We are those that the Son has chosen to reveal the Father to. The God of this world was blind. The one true and living God who said, let there be light, turned the lights on in our hearts. Praise God. So, Jesus displays glory, dispenses grace, and defines God. Truth, glory, and grace, and God revealed. That sounds like a pretty sound base from which to launch all of life from, doesn't it? That sounds like it's going to be a life that's lived making sense of the craziness in the world. As I mentioned at the start, that quote, people want to believe in a system of values and yet they have no real basis for their belief. They're confused about life. If you haven't been given the mind of Christ and able to see the glory of Christ, you are just going to be confused about life. The Gospel of John has as its purpose doesn't it? To provide for us the basis for all truth. That the Word became flesh. That He's the Messiah, the Son of God. And that in believing in Him, you might have life in His name. And from that basis, having believed, you will live out life with true meaning and true purpose. As sons and daughters who are being taken to eternal glory by grace and who are given grace upon grace to run the race while here on earth. Again, Jesus said in John chapter 11, verse 40, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? You'll see the glory of God both in eternity, for all eternity, but you'll also see the glory of God here on earth on your way to eternity. We do not see Jesus' glory here on earth with our physical eyes as a shining light. We see Jesus' glory as we read and hear about the way He talks and lives. And as John Piper said, in the way He loves and dies. It is then and only then that by grace we see His divine glory and beauty. And from that glory we have God defined for us and we have an unceasing flow of enabling grace showered upon us. Jesus said in John chapter 20 verse 29, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Seen with the eye of faith. I want to close with this remark from Jonathan Edwards who said, God is glorified not only by His glory being seen, but by it being rejoiced in. That's a remarkable, fitting statement. Because when we behold glory, we will rejoice in the one whom dispenses glory and grace and truth. Truth ignites affections, doctrine ignites joy, glory transforms. Any joylessness in the child of God is sent packing 
when we dwell on the one who dwelt among us. There are some of you sitting here who are confused about life because you haven't been given the mind of Christ because you haven't received Christ. And I appreciate the confusion because this world is crooked and perverse. But clarity can be given when the light shines into your heart. When you humble yourself and confess that the one who hung upon the cross died for me. That I'm a great sinner in need of a great Savior. And he hung upon that cross. And all that was due me fell upon him. And he rose again the third day, defeated death. When you do that, truth will ignite your affections. And truth will ignite joy. And you will behold the transforming glory of the Lord. And you will rejoice in it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and say thank you for the immense privilege it is to be a child of God, to be born of you, by you, solely by your grace. By your grace, we have seen his glory. Help us to gaze ever more at this glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father who is full of grace and truth. We ask that you would aid us and bless us. We thank you for this time. Help us, we pray. Help us to appropriate and apprehend all that we've heard today. We believe in the Holy Spirit and we believe he can do a mighty work. Working in us and through us to your glory as we seek to behold your glory. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.